according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Isaiah, and this morning brings us to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. I'm getting so close now since there's only 66 chapters in this book. Getting close. Isaiah 59. This will be our final Isaiah for a couple of weeks anyway because of my vacation, but when we return, we will return for Isaiah chapter 60 and finish out the book down through chapter 66. But for today, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. The deficiency is not on God's part. It's on ours. And this is what the chapter deals with. The chapter is actually quite uh, personal, quite convicting, and uh, I'd like to open us up with a word of prayer so that we might be humble to receive the word implanted, that we would receive it personally and accept all the conviction that uh, this chapter contains. Please join me in prayer. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for the blessings of your word, thankful for uh, the lights coming back on, Father, after that short power failure. Uh, we just look forward to serving you as, uh, as you design it. Father, provide for this hour of teaching with uh, lights on or off, recorded or not recorded. Uh, Father, your, uh, your children have assembled on this day to receive instruction. And we claim the promise that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And I do thank you, Father, that uh, you love us and care us enough, uh, care for us enough to uh, transform us into the image of your Son. And I thank you that your word will do just that on this day. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a sin problem. And that's what the first eight verses here are dealing with. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And this is what we know as carnality. Carnality. Oop, wrong slideshow. Carnality. All right, let me get the right slideshow. Thought I had done that already. Let's do this one. Carnality produces a wall of separation between believers and God. All right. Now, I know there's a lot in the news about this famous wall of separation. All right. And that uh, a lot of people get really buggy on this wall of separation in uh, political realms. And I'm going to limit my discussion today to the biblical wall of separation that comes between a carnal believer and the God who chooses to no longer listen to our prayers. And we see this here. So let me start again. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Not that he cannot hear, that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters 
wickedness. So stop blaming his arm and stop blaming his ears, all right, because it's all about your iniquities, your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue, everything you're doing, your thought life, your words, and your deeds. You're committing every sin imaginable. And uh, until such time as you confess and are restored to fellowship and cleansed from all unrighteousness, so long as you continue to abide in this state of carnality, God's not listening. All right. In fact, it will get worse the longer you prolong it. Verse 4, no one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Similar to the sin conception we learn about in the book of James. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace." All right, so there's the first section, the first eight verses here in Isaiah 59. And I'd love to spend two months here just in these eight verses, but we can't do it, all right? We've got to work our way through. But understand that carnality produces this wall of separation. There's a huge difference between cannot and will not, all right? There is a huge difference between cannot, which it implies a, a limitation or a weakness or a... Um, a finite circumstance on God's behalf. We don't imply that at all. God has no limitations. There's nothing he cannot do. Okay? Well, I should take that back. There's a, there's a list of things he cannot do. But this is not a cannot issue. This is a will not issue. It's not that he cannot hear you. It's that he chooses not to hear you. And so we have the principles here. It's not the first time we've encountered this either. In uh, Isaiah 1.15, he said that their sacrifices were making him uh, vomit that he was sick of smelling what they were bringing. Sometimes we think we're bringing a sweet-smelling savor. It's sweet-smelling, all right, but not the way we think, all right, in the carnal kind of way. And God says, no, I hate it. It is an abomination to me. Do you remember this from Isaiah 1, verse 15, where he says, uh, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. The issue is your carnality. You are in an unclean state. He cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. There's this larger context here in Isaiah 1 where he's calling them names. In verse 10, he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, when he's calling names like that, that's designed to get your attention. So he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? You're tracking mud through your mother's kitchen. All right, that never goes over well. You're tracking mud through the Father's holy place. This trampling of my courts. So he says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. It's supposed to be the sweet-smelling savor, and he can't stand it. 
I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You ever say, I've had it up to here? Here's God saying, I've had it up to here. So he says, I will not listen. I will not. Psalm 66, 18. You know, think about the I am and all of the great I will promises that we love. Don't we love the I will promises that our, that our Lord has promised? But here's an I will not. And that should be heartbreaking. That should be just as heartbreaking as, as the I will promises are precious. As, uh, Psalm 66, 18. Verse 16 says, Come and hear all who fear God. I will tell of what he has done for my soul. See, my answers to prayer should be everybody's business. This isn't privacy, the priesthood time. This is join me and celebrate time. Let us all worship together for what he's provided. I cried to him with my mouth and he he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. This is this principle. If you're carnal, out of fellowship, you don't have a prayer life. God's waiting for your confessions. The only prayer he's going to hear is your confession in 1 John 1, 9. But certainly God has heard. He's given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. In Proverbs 1, 28. Is that right? Yeah. Is that the one I was aiming for? Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. So it's the same thing. In fact, he's going to laugh. He's going to laugh. Because wisdom is shouting out in the streets, and he says, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? You know, it's cute to be naive when you're a two-year-old, but when are you going to grow up? You're a 56-year-old man, you think you're a six-year-old little girl. Come on, (laughs) grow up. How long will you love being simple-minded? Turn to my reproof. But when you refuse, when you neglect the counsel, when you reject the word of God, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. That's Proverbs one twenty six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And when they call on me, I will not answer. They will seek me diligently. They will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now he's nearby, but we must approach him on his terms, not our own terms. Okay, Cain and Abel should have taught us that. We need to confess. We need to be back in fellowship. Or we have no prayer life. That is a a vital, vital difference. And the longer we wait, you say, well, I'm still having fun. Let me give it another day or two. (laughs) Then I'll get back in fellowship. Then I'll start going back to church again. Then I'll walk with the Lord again. No, you won't. Because you're making it worse in the meantime. You're spinning a tangled web Prolonged carnality brings the believer into a tangled web mindset of darkness. And where your mind goes and then where it goes from there is even worse. As they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, as they hatch adder's eggs. You know, is that an egg you want to be hatching? And how, and because, you know, once you hatch it, what do you got? You got an adder. (laughs) And it starts off small, doesn't stay small. All right, it worsens as these things grow. From that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. And then you think, well, hey, I can, I can do something out of this. I mean, won't God excuse a little bit of carnality if I put it to good use? 
Won't, won't God tolerate a little bit of, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use it for good reasons. I can get something productive out of this. Isn't God the God who turns cursing into blessing? Yes, God's the God who turns cursing into blessing. But we're not the ones that turn carnality production into something worthwhile. Anything we do in carnality is wood, hand, stubble, the judgment seat of Christ. And if you think you're producing something, it's not going to last. It's not even reality. It's like cobweb. I mean, it's like uh, the, the, uh, the fig leaves that Adam and Eve attempted. You're just doing your own version of it with spider webs. All right? And we see that in verse 6. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. So God will be no more impressed with, with your carnality production than he was with Adam and Eve and their carnality production. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. This is like the anti-eagerness. We should have a positive eagerness. We should be eager to serve the Lord, eager to do good. Remember the doctrine of, of eagerness? The Lord gave us that in Second Corinthians. Well, here's an eagerness of the other kind. Where folks, can't, man, they can't sin fast enough or often enough. Hey, let's do more. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. So even when they're not actively sinning, they're thinking about the next time they can. Yeah, there it is. Not only do we have the uh, indication here that this uh, prolonged carnality makes matters worse, but I think we also have the reinforcement in Job 15.35 and Proverbs 6.18. And of course, if you don't take the word of God's word for it, then you can try it out yourself. But I don't recommend that prolonged carnality and how worse does it get then understand that when you come out of the woods that's a longer walk all right and coming out of the darkness is a longer process and there's additional discipline and consequences that take place and there's been damage done in the meantime and there's memories and struggles that that you the scar tissue you take with you until that gets healed over job 15 35 they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, and their mind prepares deception. This is a conclusion of Eliphaz's speech there and talking about that group and what they're walking in, the company of the godless, as it describes them there. Proverbs 6.18. We're in chapter 7 now in our Proverbs series, but it wasn't that long ago we were in chapter 6. Of all the things that God hates, notice, Six, yea, seven, which are an abomination to him. A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that run rapidly to evil. There's two of the items on that list of six. All right. The heart that's planning it and the feet that are eager to do it. And that's what happens with this prolonged carnality. See, we're creatures of habit anyway. I believe that God designed that on a positive basis. God designed humanity to be devoted and ideally, in sinless humanity and in, in fellowship, we should be devoted to God. We should be devoted to one another. We should be devoted in a very positive way. Problem is, fallen man, instead of being devoted, becomes addicted. Becomes very, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're slave to our sin. We become vulnerable to addictions. We become vulnerable to thought processes and patterns of thinking. Ruts, if you will, that our mind goes into. And there you have it. So prolonged carnality. And then conscious delay of confession. The conscious delay of confession. All this is going to do is intensify the divine discipline for the believer who should have confessed long ago. (laughs) 
conscious delay of confession intensifies the divine discipline for the believer who should have confessed long ago. You know, we think about David and his confession with, uh, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. And then he's exposed by the prophet uh, Nathan who comes along and does the, you know, the, the King George and the Ducky story that he tells from Veggie Tales. Which I love, by the way. If you've not seen King George and the Ducky, you're missing out. But Nathan the prophet exposes David's sin. And David immediately confesses. We say immediately confesses. But how immediately is it when it's already been nine months and that baby's born? Okay? Because he tried to cover it up the whole time. And from one cover-up to the next cover-up to the next cover-up. And then nine months of thinking he got away with it. Until here's this baby and the baby's struck dead. Takes a week to die. And uh, he goes into this judgment here as Nathan rebukes him for his sin. Well... Might the baby have lived if he would have confessed earlier? See, things intensify the longer it takes. The longer it takes. So let's go through some of these next verses here. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. See, again, we got the follow-up to verses 1 through 8, where it seems like my prayers aren't being answered. It seems like uh, things are getting worse. And, uh, you know, you keep taking matters in your own hands to try to solve your problems. No, all you really need is to confess. Get right with the Lord. See what he has for you next. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. (laughs) We keep thinking, man, this this is going to get better sometime while I'm still engaged in this self-destructive behavior. And in, in human viewpoint comes along and all the helpful hints are saying, oh, come on, it'll get better. It'll get better. Every cloud has a silver lining. You know, they're giving you all some human viewpoint or some whatever. No, you need to confess and get right with the Lord because the gloom is getting gloomier. The darkness is getting darker. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. And that's the problem. See, we have eyes. We just haven't been using them. He that has an ear, let him hear. He that has eyes, let him see. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. You know, it's been a long time since we read that great uh, mount up with wings like eagles verse, okay? But those are, that's for those who wait upon the Lord. It's not for this carnal person. These carnal folks, they've got no wings like eagles. They're not mounting up. They're, uh, they're shuffling along like a dead man. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. There's a sad song. You know, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Everybody wants to throw their own pity party, but no one wants to attend anybody else's. And so, you know, we moan and we moan and we moan, and, and the moans kind of drown out one another, I guess, how that works. We hope for justice, but there is none, for salvation is far from us. So the thing is, as we want an answer, we just don't want the only thing that we know that is the answer. <laughs> Because we know, we've been taught, we have the conviction. Say, who told you that you were naked? God was, all God wanted was the confession. That's all he's asking for. It's all he's ever been. Even going to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He, all he wants is the confession. Simple as that. Verse 12, our transgressions are multiplied before you. This is why it cycles, see? 
They're multiplied. We're supposed to be multiplying prayers, and here's transgressions that are multiplied. Because you go carnal, you want carnal so you could do sin A, and next thing you know, now that your sin nature's in charge and you're a slave to the sin nature, now you've done sin B, C, D, E, F, and G. In fact, you're so caught up, in, you might maybe you didn't even get to do A. <laughs> you ever think about that? You went carnal so you could do A, and then you didn't even get to do it. But now you're carnal and you're in this, these uh, interlocking systems of sin. Or maybe you did get to do it and it just wasn't the fun you thought it was going to be. So transgressions are multiplied and our sins testify against us. There's a long list of witnesses saying, yep, did that, did that, did that, did that, did that. I would much rather walk in the light where all my sin is cast behind his back into the depths of the sea, never to be remembered ever again. We know, so our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the street. Uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. All the self-help books in the world kind of devastated there by verse 15a okay you're going to turn over a new leaf something under there's going to bite you okay you turn aside from evil here's the thing you know you talk about the pearls before swine they'll give what is holy the dogs and the the nature of that adversarial relationship of the crowd we shouldn't be running with in the first place and yet when you don't turn to the lord and all you decide to do is well i guess i'm gonna to have to turn aside from these guys well, what, what are they going to do? So now you're carnal and their enemy. I'd much rather be in fellowship and their enemy because then the Lord is for me. Who can be against me? So turn aside from his evil makes himself a prey. And here's the thing, you know, and people decide, well, I'm going to quit drinking. Or I'm going to quit this. or I'm going to quit that. or I'm going to uh, whatever. And, and, and so they get kind of this sin thing and they're going to they're gonna become morally reformed reprobates or whatever. And, and then what are, what are they? There's no benefit to any of that. It has no value against fleshly indulgence. See? And now we're just doubly worse off because now we're still under God's divine discipline. And even worse, now we're the target of these other guys. So, you have it. Conscious delay of confession. How much worse do you want to get it? Concealment never works as we cannot hide from God. Concealment never works as we cannot hide from God. David tried it. David tried it for nine long months. Thought he got away with it. You know, Isaac tried it. Isaac thought he got away with it. When Isaac blessed Jacob, he thought he was blessing um, Esau, right? Because Jacob was in disguise, had the furry hands and the, the clothes and was smelling Esau-like. And, and when Jacob, when Isaac blessed him, he thought he was blessing Esau. He thought that he was defying the will of God. As far as he knew, he did. Until the real Esau came in. And then the jig was up. Okay, But as far as he knew, he succeeded. But we never succeed. We never get away with our carnality. We cannot hide from God. One of my favorite Tim Duncan songs is, I cannot hide from God. Okay, Proverbs 28, verse 13 and 14. There's some good verses for you too. Good confession verses. 
See, it's not just 1 John 1, 9. That's not the first time that confession was ever written in the Bible. We've got Psalm 51. We've got Psalm 63. We've got Proverbs 28. We've got Genesis 3. Genesis 4. But how about Proverbs 28? Verses 13 and 14. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. The operation cover up. It's not doing anything. You can maybe hide it from your eyes or hide it from somebody else's eyes. Hide it from your pastor's eyes. You don't want your pastor to find out what a sinner you are. But you can you can lie to a lot of people. But God knows. He's watching. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You see the two activities there? He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. See, when you are brought to that point of conviction by the Holy Spirit that says, this is sin, I need to confess it, I need to get back in fellowship, and then you quash that, you just harden your heart so that you could prolong your carnality and say, oh, no, no, I'm not ready to confess yet. I wanna, I wanna, I'm having too much fun. I want to just, just, just one more, Lord. How blasphemous do you want to get? Do you really want to defy the Lord that way? And I think this tandem, too, of confess and forsake destroys the legalistic, easy confessionism crowd that wants to do a uh, preventative confession or who does an excuse-making thing that, well, I know it's wrong, but I'll just, I'll just confess it after and it'll, it'll be okay. If that's your attitude before you do it, you got the wrong attitude. And I, I doubt that your confession afterwards is even genuine based on what the hard attitude needs to be, based upon what homologeo really is. You're not saying the same thing God's saying if you're making excuses for it. And if you're not forsaking it, he who confesses and forsakes it. So, you know, if, if uh, you've got a sin that's regularly scheduled on the calendar and... Uh, yeah, and uh, you know you're coming home from this week's sin. You think you're going to confess it and get back in fellowship when you've already got next week booked? Okay, doesn't work like that. You can mouth some words, but I tell you, you can go to the Father and say, "Father, I did such blah blah blah." That's not homilego. It's not admission. Don't admit what you did. It's confession. Is declare the righteousness of God in agreement with God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's he who confesses and forsakes them that will find compassion. That Colonel theme taught it is rebound and follow through. Everybody got rid of the follow through. They just turned the rebound into a, into a, a Harry Potter spell, a magical incantation, say the words and you're good. That's not how it works. Psalm 139. I love this one. Don't know that I'll read all 12 verses, but I could. It's, it's, uh, it's a good psalm. Got his omniscience and his omnipresence here. Okay, I won't read the whole psalm. I'll just have just the first 12 verses. Where can I go? Where can I hide from your presence? O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You know me better than I know me. Okay? You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. 
Before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Every thought, every, every desire, every attitude behind the thought. He, he's the critical judge of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Thank God for that. Okay, He's very protective in the, in the boundaries that he sets. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? We think we can, and there's nowhere we can go. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Say, from the infinite direction up to the infinite direction down in the multidimensional capacities of heaven and hell and the physical universe, God is everywhere. He observes all things. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And that's the thing is when I'm running, I'm not, I'm, am I, what am I trying to do? Get out from under his hand? No, his hand gets heavier when I'm out there in permissive will, when I'm out there in discipline because he's, that heavy hand is designed to bring me back where I belong. But even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you in that he can see through any darkness to see where we are. He can bring us back to the light. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Anyway, it goes on. It's just so marvelous how God has done on our behalf. So concealment never works. We cannot hide from God. The greatest example of this, of course, is King David. The greatest example of this principle is King David. You can read this in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where the, uh, the prophet Nathan comes and rebukes him for that sin, where he gets exposed. He does so by means of a parable. He talks about a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man who had one little ewe lamb, and he just creates this, this uh, allegory. Okay, Now that we've studied Galatians 4, we're great with allegories. We can handle all of them. But he gives this message, and in teaching this message, he makes da- uh, David madder than a hornet. David is just furious at what that rich man did, killing the the poor man's little ewe lamb, and just furious. That man deserves to die. See, and he was just as angry. He's learned what homologo means. He's adopting the the, uh, thinking of God in what such a thing is worthy of. And as soon as he uh, says that man deserves to die, the prophet Nathan's like, yep, and you're the man. I'm preaching to you, David, and the whole exposure of it there in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. So that's the background, and we don't need to turn there. I'm saving time. We won't turn there and read that, but you can read through that on your own. But combine that now with Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And also add these to your 1 John 1, 9 doctrine whenever you're teaching that, or whenever someone's trying to mock you for what they think is a false doctrine. Psalm 32. And you'll note the consequences here of deferred or delayed confession. How blessed is he or how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that's the best an Old Testament believer could could say 
under the Old Testament atonement principles. How blessed is the man, or how happy, it's asherah, happiness, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We have both positional righteousness here and experiential righteousness. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Well, how long did that take? Why did you keep silent? Well, we know why. All right. You know, think how rough it is when (laughs) you're the king and you're bringing your offering to the priests. (laughs) Well, you want them to find out about what you've done? That's worthy of death, David, twice. The adulterer should be put to death. The murderer should be put to death. And there is no actual sacrifice anyway for, uh, for the uh, willful sin. All right. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This is what happens. Delay your confession, the hand gets heavier. It gets heavier. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Imagine what form that took, what bodily condition form that took. David was normally an active fellow. I mean, a warrior, a shepherd, an outdoorsy kind of guy. And yet uh, that was gone. Sin had sapped him of, of any of that vitality. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I think this is after the uh, Nathan exposure then. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. If you ever want to do the advanced theological studies on this, you've got to understand the sin forgiveness and then the guilt of the sin forgiveness and distinctions there in terms of expiation and different things. But here's confession. And here's confession that had been delayed far longer than it should have been. We, should, we, we like to say keep short accounts. We want to maximize the time that we spend in spirituality and minimize the amount of time that we spend in carnality. And that's not a legalism game, and it's not a uh, it's not a phony racket or a gimmick. I loved the the illustration that Dan drew when he had that that apple toy thing up here, right? And he was drawing the the uh, perspective of prolonged or consistent spirituality with occasional blips into carnality, but then immediate confession and you're back up to a general course of your life is up here in spirituality. That's, that's ideal. The opposite is down here. We have typically daily carnality most of the time, most days, and then every so often you have a blip of confession and restoring your fellowship, but that doesn't really stick very long. You're right back down into the darkness again. And so... Um, it was almost like one of those blood pressure charts at the hospital or one of those heart monitor machines, right? And it's, it's just blipping along and doing what it's doing. Well, we should be up here in the spirituality line with occasional drops down there into carnality and then short accounts, a very rapid, immediate confession right back in. Try to catch the sin of the middle stage before it ever becomes a verbal stage or an overt stage and get back in the light again. All right, so that was a good diagram. I liked that on Ordination Sunday when you taught that. So um, that's Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. And um, then Psalm 51. Psalm 51. 19 entire verses here. 
By the way, this little prescript that comes before verse 1, that actually is verse 1 in the Hebrew text. These, uh, these psalm blurbs are, uh, belong in the Hebrew text. They're not editorial things that were shoved in there by the publishers of your English Bible. So this is a psalm. Of, this is for the choir director. Meaning, hey, this is a great thing we can sing as a choir. Let's sing this as a group. And a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, so that we know for a fact this is the consequence or this is the context for this, uh, this psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Not because I've earned it, not because I've deserved it, but because you're a God of grace. The chesed loving kindness of God. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. The minute you try to bargain with God or try to make a deal or try to apologize for something or promise to never do it again or anything that you add to confession, you're ruining the whole point. <laughs> right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because his son paid the price, not us. It has nothing to do with us. It's according to the greatness of your compassion that you blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. When you're in the light and walking in fellowship, you don't remember those things. But when you're walking in darkness, it's ever before you. God puts it front and center in your mind and you have to try constantly. Get that out of your mind. Get that out of your mind. Or worse, you don't try. You just happily keep it there. Keep reliving the last carnal moment. Keep dreaming how the next one will be better. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Didn't sin against Uriah. You kind of think he did, right? He murdered Uriah. But that we, we know there's a difference between sins and offenses. The sin is against God's standard of righteousness. Uriah is a sinner, same as David. All right. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. That's the lost estate in Adam, total depravity. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. This is what he desires. Not just that we are saved, but that we're growing in the truth. That all men become saved and grow in the knowledge of the truth. The hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with... So in other words, even this divine discipline becomes a learning experience. The discipline in this carnality as I recover, as I grow past this, becomes an edification, learning experience. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Broken bones as the consequences of delayed sin. The conscious delay of confession. How, I mean, was he speaking in metaphor here or was it literal? How much worse does it get the longer we wait to confess? You know, eventually you get to the point, I know I did, you're tired from that boot to the head, to that boot to the head, to that boot to the head. And every boot to the head was a bigger boot. And you said, I don't want the next one. I'm afraid of what the next one's going to be. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Understand your first few days and weeks and maybe even months, depends. I mean, how long have you been in darkness? For the first few days and weeks, and I mean, it's going to be a while. You've got to renew your thinking. You've got to renew your heart. You may not have the, the, the most positive volition for a while. Ask Him to give it to you. 
Ask Him to renew a steadfast spirit. Ask Him to supply the, the, the uh, attitude you, you need to take time to redevelop. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now that's an Old Testament prayer. We don't need to fear that one. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know? I've spent so much time in darkness, I forgot how happy I am to be saved. I need that back. Reawaken that within me. That's what David is saying here in this psalm. And sustain me with a willing spirit. God will never override your volition, so you ask him to give you that volition. Sustain me with a willing spirit. If he's at work to will and to do, then let him be at work to will and to do. Ask him, Father, give me positive volition today. Because I don't seem to be as hungry as I used to be in the things of the Word of God. So make me hungry. And use the moments of spirituality to pray for those moments of darkness. Say, Father, right now, strangely enough, I'm in fellowship, so I'm praying, Father, that you give me the attitude I need. Humble me. Give me positive volition. Give me a hunger. And then he's not overruling your negative volition. You asked him to do it. You asked him to uh, give you that willing spirit. Then, oh, people hate this. In fact, if verse 13 makes you uncomfortable, then just go ahead and mark it out of your Bibles. Pretend it's not there. Joking. Joking, of course. (laughs) Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Your repentance and recovery becomes a teaching venue. You've got a blessing to teach others. And you've got a responsibility to warn others. And a lot of folks don't like that. They want to say, oh, well, that's none of their business. But wait a minute. Now you've got a chance to teach transgressors your ways. Now you've got a chance to teach some knucklehead like we're learning about now in Proverbs 7. You can come alongside Pethy that we're studying in Proverbs 7 and say, don't go there. I've been there. All right? But the opportunity to teach as a consequence of your recovery from darkness is is very humbling it's humiliating it means that uh well well, they're going to find out that i i I did something okay oh wow they're going to find out you're not sinless and perfect there's a news flash okay guess what they know anyway but here's the thing you've got a blessing now to don't you want to save them from the damage you've done to your own soul is that not worth it to you You would rather watch their soul suffer knowing what your soul has suffered? Ever wonder if maybe this process will rip off your scar tissue? Or how much much harder do your scars get when you stay silent and watch that believer fall into what they're falling into? Yeah, there it is, verse 13. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Nobody can praise and celebrate more than the one that's been forgiven more. Okay? Now, you want to be a Pharisee or do you want to be the woman wiping his feet with your hair and just crying and rejoicing and celebrating how faithful he is to forgive and to restore? (laughs) Kind of a neat... uh, neat day to get a message like this because our message is going to end here and we'll be given announcements and one of those announcements is the restoration of a deacon the deacon office 
Think about how fun it is to praise those kind of things. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. See, David understood what the shadow was and what the reality was. And if the blood of bulls and goats could do something, the king could give all the goats and bulls in the world. Wouldn't be enough. But it's the broken spirit, it's the contrite heart, it's the homologato attitude that agrees with God in all these things. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's real confession. That's real confession. That's not covering your tracks and looking for the next Bathsheba. Okay? By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, it's even worse if you're king, because now you've got to recover, and your nation that suffered in your sin has to recover. Your wife, your family, your church, your kingdom. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Then we will have the animal ritual, but it'll be ritual with the reality. What a beautiful thing. All right. So carnality produces the wall of separation. Conscious delay of confession intensifies that divine discipline. Finally, the last part of Isaiah 59. Let me get back to Isaiah 59. I split verse 15 in half. Did you notice that? I think uh, if if I was responsible to reversify the entire Bible, I would like to split verse 15. So take the now the Lord saw forward to the end of the chapter. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. So in other words, here's Isaiah looking around, seeing carnality everywhere. Here's God looking around, seeing carnality everywhere. So much so, of course, that there is none righteous, no, not one. He saw there was no man. He was astonished there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. God does what man cannot do because there was no man who could. And so God became a man and did what we could not do. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. This almost starts to look like our own Ephesians 6 armor, but it's critically different. I think our Ephesians 6 armor is patterned after this armor, but with one important difference that we ourselves cannot um, wrap ourselves with zeal as a mantle. That's left only for him. The garments of vengeance for clothing, that's left only for him. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We cannot put on these robes. But he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory from the rising of the sun. He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. And so a redeemer is on the way accomplishing what only he can do. He came in first advent, not in wrath, but he came to save, and now he's going to come in second advent 
and He will accomplish this redemption. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. What a great Sunday to come to this chapter, huh? Since we're standing Old Covenant and New Covenant in the Galatians series. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. In the new covenant, Israel receives the Holy Spirit. They receive the law within their heart. They all become teachers. They all are vested in the prophetic office. This is a part of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is why chapter 60 opens with rise and shine and give God the glory. You've got to wait three weeks for that. <laughs> all right. What are we looking at here? Jesus Christ is the only Savior, Intercessor, Recompenser, Redeemer. When you see all of the roles that are found, that are featured in this chapter, in the half chapter, in this paragraph. Jesus Christ is the only Savior, Intercessor, Recompenser, Redeemer. If anyone else could have done it, they, could have, they, they would have done it, maybe, but no one could. See, although I think most pastors say even if they could, they wouldn't. (laughs) And that's probably true. But Jesus Christ is the only one, the only Savior, Intercessor, Recompenser, Redeemer. This This is true, by the way, positionally to save you, but it's also true experientially. Who is the intercessor that sits at the Father's right hand? You know, would you rather have your pastor say he's praying for you? Would you rather have that intercessor at the Father's right hand? See, don't get me wrong, you'll have both, but the the real one, the better one, the infinitely eternal perfect one is Jesus Christ seated at the Father's right hand. He is the Savior, intercessor, recompenser, redeemer. You know, if we could save ourselves, God would let us. (laughs) There's even invitations to that in Job, Job 40. I love Job 40. This, by the way, use these verses. If, you're, if you encounter someone that thinks they can earn heaven, use these verses and show they can't. Because if a human could save another human, Jesus Christ would have never come to this earth. We would have never had a Christmas manger if a human could save another human. The point is, there's none who can. As we're looking at here in Isaiah, there was no man. There was no one to intercede. So it was his own arm then that brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. There was no man with an arm to save or with righteousness that counted for anything. All our righteousness is filthy rags. Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3. Got to be careful. You know, the last Sunday before vacation, I might go for three hours. This is just, pastors go long. When All right. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You, you, with your own hand, drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. You spread them abroad. For by their own sword, they did not possess this land. By their own arm, they did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. It's all grace. 
It's God's hand moving, not ours, and it's all grace. We sing that in that hymn, the arm of flesh will fail you, you dare not trust your own. God's arm, that's what saves us. Job 40, Job 40, and there is so much tongue-in-cheek here, there's so much sarcasm here. I love this. I, I, I speak fluent sarcasm, and this, this, um, this speaks to me when I read this chapter. Because Job thinks he's high and mighty and thinks that he can pronounce God wrong. And God says, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, pull up your pants. Teach me something. He says, all right, you fault finder. The Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? You know, this might be a marquee boxing match, but fault finder versus Almighty doesn't seem to be a, an even fight. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And this is interesting. In verse 6, the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? The only way to prove yourself righteous is to declare that I'm unrighteous. And he tells Job, if you think you're going to win that way, that's not a win. If you, if you make me unrighteous. <clears throat> it's actually Satan's method. The only way Satan can be like the Most High God is if he can prove God unrighteous. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. That is a powerful passage. And anyone that thinks that they can save themselves, this is the passage for them. You think you are God. Think again. Think again. Where were you? Where were you? Anyway, that was an earlier chapter, but same context here of, the, of Job's rebuke. See, understand, Jesus Christ wrapped himself with zeal to do what only he could do. He wrapped himself with zeal. We saw a glimpse of that in First Advent. His disciples were a bit speechless when he was flipping over tables and driving out money changers. But they were, they were reminded of the Scriptures that spoke of the zeal that consumed him. He was wrapped with zeal. He'll be wrapped with zeal again at Second Advent. That was just a glimmer. That, that, that moment in the temple was just a glimmer. Imagine what Armageddon's going to be like. We don't wear that garment, by the way. Never in the New Testament are we told to wear that garment. None of the Ephesians 6 armor is the armor of vengeance or the clothing of vengeance or the armor of zeal. Jesus Christ and He alone. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Those who accept His work are eternally objects of His intercession eternally the objects of his intercession. Again, I was, he was astonished. Isaiah said was astonished. The Lord was astonished that there was no one to intercede in verse 16. Because the very act of being someone's redeemer, then you're his. He now intercedes on your behalf. And what he did first was much harder. 
He's now very pleased, very happy to intercede on your behalf. What will he not freely give us now that he's already given us everything? You want passages on the intercession work of Jesus Christ? How about Hebrews 2, 17 and 18? Hebrews 4, 15. Why it is that he's so faithful in his prayer life. He knows our weaknesses. He identified with us. Hebrews 7, 25 ever living to make intercession for the saints. You know, all those other priests, they kept dying. (laughs) Every generation, here's another one, because they keep dying. Here's another one, here's another one. Jesus Christ abides in his priesthood eternally. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. 1 John 2, 1. When we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. (laughs) It's to declare his righteousness on our behalf every single time what a joy what a delight likewise those who reject his work will be recipients of his recompense those who reject his work see if you're not an object of his intercession then you're going to be the object of his recompense payback wrath poured out This is the inheritance of the lost. You want passages on recompense, I recommend Deuteronomy 32, 34 through 43, and Romans 12, 19. I think there's more. I mean, I know there's more. We can add uh, 2 Thessalonians to that. When he comes to judge the unrighteous for the unrighteous deeds they've done in an unrighteous way. It's called recompense. Second Advent is called recompense. It's called payback. We get so finite, we want payback today. (laughs) No. Today is grace. We want to get them saved today so they join us in the rapture of the church so they're not the objects of recompense at Second Advent. That's why imprecatory prayers are not appropriate in the church age. All right, well... Let me grab just a couple of the intercession prayers and then we'll have to dismiss. Hebrews uh, 2, just because we've had so much work in Hebrews lately in the uh, Galatians series, talking about Old Covenant and New Covenant. Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He wasn't the... uh, god angel born to the virgin angel right no he was the god man born of a virgin god in the flesh he likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil it's the redemption of humanity that resolves the angelic conflict that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives for assuredly he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendants, descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This qualifies him to be the propitiation. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Every prayer you pray, he knows what it's like. He didn't fail in it, but he knows what it's like to be tempted in it. He identifies with it, and he intercedes on your behalf, on my behalf. 
chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, we have these double negatives in here. Let's... We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, right? One who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Everything you go to the Father and ask for, Jesus Christ is right there at your side, asking with you in complete understanding of what you're dealing with. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the Old Testament, the pinnacle of approach was a mercy seat. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is our mercy seat, and through Him we approach a throne of grace. Aaron, the high priest, could never even dream about a throne of grace. His pinnacle was a mercy seat. And that was just a shadow of the good things to come. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Save to the uttermost right? He is also able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. And finally, 1 John 2, 1. I'm out of time. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins. Same word. He himself is the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for Isaiah. I thank you for the admonishments that come in Isaiah 59, that when I'm carnal, Father, you will not hear, that when I am carnal, Father, um, I have no prayer life. I need to confess. And the longer I delay, the longer I slow, I'm slow about confessing, the worse I'm making it for myself, Father. So I thank you for this admonition, and I thank you for your Son, the one and only Savior, Intercessor, Redeemer. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that he put on the garments he put on and did the work that he did, so that now, Father, I can put him on. I'm clothed with Christ, and I thank you for that. And I pray, Father, for folks that do not yet have Jesus Christ. They do not yet have eternal life. Father, I pray this might be the day. It's a Christmas season, Father. We're celebrating the birth of your son. We're celebrating his uh, arrival in this world. Father, whatever it might be that's hindering the, the trust, the faith, the believing, whatever it might be, clear it away. Convict, draw, pull. Bring, bring anybody, Father, that's not yet in the light to the light, that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, that they might believe in Jesus Christ and be transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Might today be the day. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.